Frankfurt on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are with us for the very first time for the next hour, uh, we take people's questions. Normally, uh, our dear friend Deb, who uh, takes the live callers, is out today. So we'll just be taking email questions. So you can email us here directly into the studio. And Rick, give the email address if you would. It is tbl at wagp.us. All right. So you can email us and it will pop up on the screen. And we actually have some questions that are here already. We'll start with those, and uh, instead of going on live, just email us directly. Again, give that address one more time. It is tbl at wagp.us. TBL stands for the Bible Line, so tbl at wagp.net, or U.S. U.S., uh-huh. not, not net anymore. No, we had a few changes Okay, there. all right, good, very good. Well, let's go ahead and uh, get started with our first question. Very well. We did have a uh, caller last time that um, we didn't get to their question, and they said in the past that, uh, um, they were taught uh, that thoughts are not sin. Only taking action on the thoughts is sinful. Uh, what is your opinion on this, and where in Scripture does it address this? Well, um, it, it addresses it really in a number of places. Uh, let, let me just start by saying, obviously, God knows our thoughts. Uh, the passage that immediately comes to mind is Psalm 139, where it says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me, you know, when I rise, when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. So God knows all of our thoughts. And the other passage that comes to mind is uh, right before the um, temple was dedicated. If you remember uh, for a long time, they uh, worshiped around a tabernacle. It's also called the temple in a few instances, that tent-like structure. So that might be a little challenging if we're not carefully paying attention to what time frame in Israel's history. But there came a time, of course, when David said, look, I'm living in a beautiful house and all we have for God is a tent. And it was in his heart to build a more permanent structure. Now, of course, they had gone into, uh, they were in that permanent place and the city where God had called his name to be focused on Jerusalem where worship was to take place. And so he had it in his heart, but he couldn't. Uh, God said, no, you're, you're got too much blood on your hands. Even though he's a man after God's own heart, he wanted a man of peace, Solomon to do it. And so uh, when the time came and uh, David addresses uh, Solomon about the temple um, and God addresses Solomon, he gives some very, very clear statements as for you, my son, Solomon, David writes, know the Lord 
God of our Father and serve him with your whole heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. If you forsake him, he will reject you. So the dad here is exhorting his son to be careful even in his very thoughts. God understands everything that's in our thoughts. So obviously there are good thoughts and there are, are bad thoughts and thoughts can be as sinful as actions and scripture very clearly articulates that truth. Um, I just turned over to Matthew chapter 15 and uh, Jesus had uh, told a, a parable and Peter responded and he said, Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding? Also, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man for out of the heart comes. And at the top of the list is evil thoughts. And then he mentions other things, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, and so forth. So God judges the thoughts. In fact, the the power of God's word, most of us have memorized Hebrews 4.12 that describes God's word as being alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So there are different kinds of thoughts, obviously, that God sometimes in Proverbs, for instance, describes uh, a person whose intent in his thoughts on evil he, in other words, his, his thought life characterizes the fact that he is an unbeliever. But Christians as well can have what we might call an inintrusive thought. And the thought is not evil in and of itself. It's what we choose to do with the thought. Uh, Jesus was tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. So obviously temptation is not sin, but temptation can turn into sin. So a person could have an evil thought and not necessarily be out of fellowship with God. The question becomes, what does he do with that evil thought? And I I think of what uh, Paul said to the Corinthians here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, He says, for though we walk in the flesh, that is in our human body, we do not war according to the flesh. In other words, when we deal with this spiritual war, we don't use simply human resources, our intellect, our, our, our strength um, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Then he says, we are destroying speculations in every lofty thing. Uh, some translations say every lofty thought, because that's the context, but literally it's thing in the Greek, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And then he says, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So again, it's what we do with those thoughts that become uh, where we cross the line, either into sin or in obedience. Now your ability to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ is predicated on your willingness to set your mind on the things above, uh, to fill your mind with the word of God. And so there's a lot of Christians who uh, have a mind that just seems to be out of control, uh, a mind that is not really governed by the spirit of God because the word of God is not hidden in their hearts. Uh, In Psalm 119, the psalmist asks the question, how can a man keep his way pure? And then, of course, he answers it by keeping it according to your word. 
And it's more than just a knowledge of the word. Then he says, with all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Thy word I've treasured, uh, kept, uh, guarded in my heart that I might not sin against you. So our ability to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ is based on hiding the word of God in our hearts. So a person can have a sinful thought. Um, and again, uh, Jesus, for instance, in Matthew chapter uh, five in the Sermon on the Mount, he deals with a couple of levels of, of thinking that is not pleasing to the Lord. Let me just turn there, Matthew five. And uh, I did a whole series once on the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most powerful sermon I think ever preached. Of course, everything in the Bible is God's word. So you can't say, well, this is more inspired or less inspired, but there's something about the Sermon on the Mount that is just absolutely will grab you. And he says here in uh, Matthew 5 and 21, you have heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So, of course, um, the theme verse in the book of um, uh, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount is the verse where Jesus says here, unless your righteousness surpasses that of that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. It's the verse right before. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And so then he makes a parallel between pharisaical righteousness and the kind of righteousness that God is looking for in the heart of the believer. So the Pharisee could say, well, I've not committed murder and think that they were righteous. But then Jesus says, if you are angry in your heart, you've committed murder. John makes a very similar statement in first John three says to hate your brother is to be a murderer. Um, he gives another example, for instance, in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. The Pharisee would say, well, I've never committed adultery. Therefore I must be righteous. But I say to you, so he's taking it past pharisaical righteousness to the righteousness that God desires. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, it's uh, it's an issue of the heart. So let's say a temptation comes to lust after someone that you uh, are not married to, some of the opposite sex, that the thought in and of itself is not sinful. Now, I will say that some people feed a lifestyle of thoughts like that because of the things they set their minds on. They listen to compromised secular music. They watch television shows that are filled with sensuality. Uh, they get even into pornography and things like that. And so their mind is filled with this kind of thing, but it's possible to be walking in righteousness and Satan who wants to tear people down will throw a thought at you. Again, the thought is not sinful, but what you decide to do with that thought is. And so if a person runs the thought over in their mind, they can commit adultery in their heart. And so God looks at our thinking. It's very, very important to him. And he wants to re-gear our thinking, retrain it. And that's only possible through a, a, a very sincere commitment to God's word. And this is why it's so important in the day that we live in, that God's word is taught, that it's preached, because we live in a day where more and more we've adopted a different style of worship that is less than biblical 
where the word of God is not taught in an in-depth fashion and God's people are suffering because of it. Very good. We're not taking calls today, but if you have a question on today's Bible line, you can email us at tbl at wagp.us. Dan from Peterborough, New Hampshire writes, I was wondering what your thoughts are on handing out gospel tracts as an effective means of sharing the message of salvation. As part of my occupation working in minor league baseball, I travel constantly. I like to hand out various gospel tracts, mostly when I'm in hotels or at restaurants, but I often wonder if leaving behind a gospel tract is an effective means of evangelism. I understand that God gets the glory and his word will not return void. And Paul states in 1 Corinthians that uh, he plants, Apollos watered, but God, of course, causes the increase. Well, it's a great question, and I'm just uh, encouraged that you would even ask the question because uh, passing out tracts is something that is almost obsolete in our day. Uh, Christians have just stopped doing those kinds of things because they're not thinking in terms of reaching the world for Christ. Uh, on Sundays after the second service, uh, virtually every Sunday, unless I have to go to our Bluffton campus or maybe to Graniteville, I have a lunch with six or seven new members uh, that um, we go around the table and we talk about where we're from and uh, how we happen to come to Community Bible Church and uh, did we become a Christian here or were we a Christian before we came? And and, and uh, anyway, uh, one of the things I encourage our, each of the new members to do is to reach out on a regular basis. And I remind them that they rub shoulders with people that I will never have the privilege to meet. So we had a Marine at the table last Sunday and he works on a Marine base and I don't really get on the Marine base that much. Used to quite often before 9-11, but with all the Titan security and everything, it's not the same. And so he rubs shoulders with people I might never meet. And of course I told him on the simplest level, one thing that everyone can do is simply invite people to church. The Southern Baptist just came out with the freshest study. So it updated my former statistics. Um, and unfortunately in the wrong direction, I used to say 80% of the people in Beaufort County are unchurched. Now, according to the Southern Baptist convention, it's 92% of the people in Beaufort County are unchurched. So we're not going in the right direction. Now, a lot of that is, is people are moving from other parts of the United States it's estimated that 40 million baby boomers want to move to the southeastern section of the country. And so you see all these, especially retirement neighborhoods and other things going up. And, and of course, in the Northeast, uh, it's very sad what's happened. Uh, hundreds of churches are closing in the Northeast. Uh, the Catholic Church is uh, closing a lot of their churches. And of course, most of those need to be closed because they don't have the message of salvation but it's still reflective of the spiritual atmosphere in America that people don't care about going to church. And you go by a lot of the Protestant churches and uh, they uh, just are empty on Sunday morning with the exception of maybe Christmas and Easter. When I became a Christian in new England in, in the 1970s, there was approximately 300 churches in the town that I was raised in Worcester mass. I was born in Lowell mass, but then we moved to Worcester when I was two weeks old. So really Worcester was the place I was raised and there was approximately 300 churches. I know that because I was uh, raising support after I graduated as a missionary uh, with campus crusade for Christ. And only five of the 300 churches had the gospel only five. And so what was once the hotbed of evangelicalism during the days of 
uh, Dwight L. Moody and Jonathan Edwards, who had had a profound impact in that part of the United States, is virtually dead today. And of course, a lot of these spiritually dead people are moving to the South, and that gives us an opportunity to win people to Christ. You know, people say, well, most people become Christians before the age of 18. I don't really buy those statistics. I think they're really uh, slanted and misrepresented by churches that have maybe formal membership classes or confirmation classes by the age of 12. But obviously a membership or a confirmation does not equate with conversion in God's mind. So uh, with that said, I'm seeing a lot of people in their 50s and 60s and 70s receive Christ as their Savior. And God, I think, um, is moving a lot of them here to the Southeast where the gospel might be more prolific than in the Northeast and giving them any of these older adults an opportunity to receive Christ as their Savior. So anyway, back to my Marine, I just said to him and all the people at the table last Sunday, I said, there's people you rub shoulders with that I don't. And so number one, you can invite people to church and you can simply ask them, hey, do you go to church anywhere? And most people will say no. Um, in which case I will say, hey, I'd like to invite you to the church I go to. Now, often they have no idea that I'm even a pastor. But again, if you're friendly with people, whether it's the waitress who's you know, taking care of you in a restaurant or the person in the checkout line or just uh, walking through a neighborhood or whatever, wherever you meet people. Uh, listen, when I go to uh, different cities sometimes <clears throat> and I know of the good churches, I will invite people to that church. And so I was with my son not long ago and we were at a track meet and I asked, uh, I asked the person, by the way, do you go to church anywhere? And they said, no. I said, well, uh, the Church of the Apostles in Atlanta is a great church. Would love to invite you there. So again, you just reach out, you invite people, and you try to encourage them to make a decision. So that's like the bottom line, bottom of the rung thing that a person can do is just invite someone to church. And hopefully, of course, the church you're inviting them to is a Bible-believing church. We have a lot of churches that are not really characterized in that way, even in our own county. Uh, we just had a luncheon and we invited more pastors, but about 30 or so came uh, for a special outreach. We wanted to include them in so that the men in their church could come to our uh, outreach that we had for those men. Uh, so there are some churches we didn't even offer an invitation to. Why? Because we wouldn't want people to go to those churches. We wouldn't want to invite the pastor. Now, if I can win that pastor to Christ, I will but I don't want to promote a false kingdom. Uh, so a second level in which you can share is with a gospel tract. And there's nothing wrong with a gospel tract. Uh, some are written better than others. One of the questions you always want to ask is, as I read this tract, is there enough information here for the person reading it to become a Christian? And there's a lot of gospel tracts where that is not the case. We're just reading through the gospel track. They will not become a Christian because the gospel is not clear. So some offer greater clarity than others. But I will say that in some cases, uh, leaving a gospel track uh, shouldn't be done, that it would be far wiser and maybe more bold to actually engage the person verbally and to walk them through the plan of salvation. So you want to be praying and looking for those opportunities too. 
I know, um, you know, say the Gideons, and I'm thankful the Gideons are leaving Bibles in hotels all across America. And I just heard this morning uh, driving in uh, that now the Quran is being left in various hotels in America, uh, which is kind of sad. Um, but if I get a stay in a hotel, I get to keep my free copy of the Quran. I'm going to take it. I tell you, so the next guy won't read it so quick. Uh, but I often like leave a gospel tract, one that I've written. Would you like to have God as your friend in the Gideon's Bible? So that when someone opens that Bible, uh, like the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading this prophet Isaiah, and he's not just reading Isaiah, he's reading the chapters, of course, that were added a long time after he read it. Um, he was reading the prophet Isaiah chapter 53, which is an evangelistic section describing what the Messiah was going to accomplish. And he's reading it, but he doesn't really understand it. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? Kind of a lead in question. And he said, well, how can I, unless someone really explains it to me? And so typically someone does not pick up a Gideon's Bible in a hotel and just read it and become a Christian. Now I'm not dismissing the fact that God's word is powerful. It's alive. It's sharper than a two edged sword. But for the most part, what you see taught and illustrated and commanded in the scriptures is for the believer to go and verbally to share it. That's why in Colossians chapter four, the apostle Paul um, asked the Colossians to pray for him in two realms. One that God would give him an open door. And some of us don't really have open doors because we don't pray for open doors. So just last Sunday, again at the table, I said, how many Christians are about 170,000 people in Beaufort County. Um, it's not that big, you know, comparatively to Atlanta that has, you know, 7 million, it's just 170,000 people. How many of those people do you think are born again? And um, the guesstimates were anywhere from about 10 to 30,000. Okay, let's, let's be generous. Let's go with 30,000. Of the 30,000 that are born again, how many of those people do you think share the gospel? And one brother said maybe 1%. Um, you know, that's, that would be like 300. So if 300 people in Beaufort County in a county of 170,000 people are sharing the gospel, maybe there's a whole lot more than that. I don't know. But I will tell you that most Christians, unfortunately, no longer share the gospel. And we're always forever trying to make America better. And if we can just get our man in the White House or this person in the Senate seat, that things are going to get better for America. And we have forgotten that what has made America great is not our economy how many jobs we got going or with the rate of growth or it's, it's the spiritual dimension to this country on which it was formed. And when that is lost, everything's gone. And so the only people who have the good news, who can share the good news are evangelical born again, Christians. It used to be a time and you'd walk into almost any evangelical church and they had some kind of outreach going on all the time. It might be a visitation program. It might be, um, you know, this outreach, that outreach, this evangelistic event, uh, even revivals. You know, what churches have revivals anymore in America? Used to be a spring revival, fall revival. And sometimes they would go one week. Sometimes they would go two weeks. I remember listening to a 
being in a Southern Baptist revival in the 1980s, and the pastor was reminiscing. He said, I remember when our, all of our revivals were at least two weeks. Every once in a while, we'd hold over for a third week. He said, now they're just four days. And, well, now they're virtually non-existent. Uh, they're virtually gone in the American church. Again, that's reflective of where we are as an evangelical culture. And so if the gospel's not preached and shared, then we are going to miss opportunities. But we have to pray for the opportunity. I find it interesting that Paul prayed for an open door. Because on the one hand, if you think about it, God had already commanded him and us by extension to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature under heaven as it's rendered in Mark's rendition. Every person under heaven. Well, listen, when I drove from where I live this morning, about 12 miles into the church, I passed hundreds of cars and at the stoplight, I didn't bang on a window and ask them if they were saved. You know, it just wouldn't be appropriate. So you pray for that open door of opportunity that God would give you. So think about it. Let's say there's 3000 people in the county of Beaufort where we have 170,000. I can't think of, I don't know how many people live in Savannah, but we got, you know, scores and scores of people listening to us in Savannah, much larger community than where we're in, but we're broadcasting there. And you're one of say three, one of 3000 people in a community of 170,000 who's willing to share his faith, willing to obey God it has nothing to do with whether or not you have the gift of evangelism because we're all commanded to do the work of an evangelist. And you're God in heaven and you're looking down in Beaufort County or in Savannah uh, or some other town where you're listening to us and you're saying, God, I want you to reach, use me to reach Walterboro for Christ. Uh, I want you to use me to reach uh, Hampton County for Christ, uh, Jasper County for Christ. God, I want you to use me to make a difference in someone's life. I'm available today if, if there's someone that you want to bring my way. I'm telling you, when you begin to pray that way, God just begins to open doors. And you realize many times my wife and I will be in a restaurant or someplace and we'll meet someone or talk to someone. And, and when we leave, we always remind each other, it really wasn't about eating at Firehouse today, was it? No, it wasn't. It wasn't an issue about eating at Outback. No, it wasn't. We were here for another reason. We were here to speak to that waitress, to that waiter about Jesus Christ. And so God has a way of orchestrating circumstances. So what I would say to you is one, I admire you that you want to even think about passing out of track. Make sure it's healthy though. Make sure it's sound doctrine. Uh, the word sound is a medical term that we was used in the first century that refers to healthy. So make sure it's healthy doctrine. Um, and you want to think through if, if I were reading this, would I know how to become a Christian? When we first started sharing the gospel um, in the 1970s, we meaning me as a new Christian, when I became a Christian in 1975, we used the four spiritual laws. And the first of the four spiritual laws was God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Later changed it to God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. That's a story in itself. But, um, you could be, and then it said, John 10, 10, uh, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. John three sixteen, law two, man is sinful. Romans three twenty three, so forth. And so, um, there was really no need to give a broader context. 
because we're a Christianized nation. Oh, yeah, the cross. I meet people now 18, 19 years old. They come to our church, maybe a young Marine, Navy personnel or whoever they might be. I'll ask them some basic questions. They have no idea. They they don't have any idea. So you have to give a broader context. So like the, the track that I've written starts in Genesis, uh, that God made you and created you to have a relationship with him. And I go through um, the fact that God breathed into his man the breath of life and he became a living soul, that he created us in his image. And that part of being made in the image of God is is having a free will, that we're not robotic, where we're programmed only to obey, uh, that we have choices to make. And then I give the illustration of the choice in Galatia, uh, Genesis 2, where God said, from any tree of the garden you may eat, but if you eat from this tree, you'll die. The day you eat, you'll die. And I'll ask them sometimes, did they eat of the tree? You know what I hear more and more? I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, they have no idea. Um, they don't know anything. 80% of the children in America are no longer going to church. And so we have this generation that is growing up. That's totally biblically illiterate. And so I think you need to start with a broader, wider presentation of the gospel in order to be able to help some of these people. Um, and I mentioned just recently in a sermon a lot of the tracks that are designed to take someone through. And again, I think this generally speaking is the most effective way to share the gospel. That's not to say you couldn't leave a tract. When I was in Israel a few years back, uh, our bus stopped at one particular kibbutz for, for lunch. And there were a few military soldiers there. And I ended up uh, striking up a conversation. His English was great. And uh, I enjoyed speaking with him. And I said, Hey, by the way, here's a little, um, uh, booklet I wrote. It's kind of a summary of your Bible, the Tanakh and the New Testament and how it all fits together. If I gave it to you, would you read it? He said, sure. And so he took it. And, you know, I didn't think again about it. I've, I might have uttered a prayer for him. I usually do when I walk away. And uh, But in either case, about two months later, I got a postcard and he wrote me because my um, search the scriptures, P.O. Box 600, Seabrook, South Carolina, is imprinted in the back of the booklet. And he wrote me a postcard just telling me one. He said, you probably may not remember me, but I met you when you're eating lunch at a particular kibbutz and you gave me this little booklet. I want you to know I've given my life to Jesus as my savior. This was a Jewish man. He had come to believe in Yeshua. So sometimes when you leave a tract, you have no idea. You might be the only point of contact that that person will ever have. But you should also be praying for opportunities to be able to share the plan of salvation, to walk someone through the plan of salvation. And so, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, I was um, reflecting that of all the major evangelical tracts that aren't, I'm not talking about just to pass out. And I probably didn't make this clear in the sermon because few people came up to me, oh, I got this tract and my son uses it and hell is in here. But I was actually talking about not tracts that you leave, but tracts that you share with people. And not one of those tracts had the doctrine of eternal retribution in it. All of them left out hell. And I think that's sad because we talk about people being saved, saved from what? Well, saved from God's eternal retribution. Hell is a very real place, but not only saved from something, but saved to someone, to a relationship with him. 
And so those balancing truths, I think, are very, very, very important to consider. Anyway, thank you for that question. Where did that come from, Virginia? That came from, uh, no, actually, it came from Peterborough, New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. If you have a question, you want to email us directly here in the studio, you can. Uh, the email address is T. B-L, the Bible line, at WAGP.us. All right. Uh And now, speaking of Virginia, we do have one from Stevens City, Virginia. Uh, William writes, it seems that most denominations ignore or believe that tongues and prophetic messages have ceased with the apostles, uh, while charismatic and Pentecostals embrace and practice both these. Can you comment on why believers should either believe... uh, these are still active and biblical, or that they are not biblical and not for today. Additionally, Charismatics and Pentecostals believe in private prayer language. Is this the same as what Paul is writing about as permissible in believer assemblies? Would you please comment on that as well? Well, these, again, are are great questions, and uh, I think to give you a full answer, I would direct you to my spiritual gifts course. I uh, actually did my doctoral dissertation on the subject of spiritual gifts and how to implement them in the local assembly. But one section of uh, the course that I wrote from that dissertation deals with the sign gifts in the New Testament. There are four sign gifts in the New Testament. People divide the gifts up in different ways, serving gifts, sign gifts, speaking gifts, serving gifts, sign gifts. Uh, the, The designations, I suppose, aren't all that important, but there are four foundational sign gifts that were unique to the New Testament era. And those were the gifts of healing, miracles, uh, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. They were foundational gifts as the church was being established. So there was a time, for instance, when the church gathered and all they had was the Old Testament scriptures. They had nothing beyond that. The first book of the Bible hadn't been written or maybe only one or two books had been written. The first book of the Bible, as best we can tell, in terms of date-wise, was the Gospel according to Matthew. And how appropriate that God would have Matthew write that book first, because they begin their evangelism in a largely Jewish world, and God had commanded them to take the Gospel to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so Matthew's Gospel is really the Jewish Gospel. And uh, so quite appropriate. But they couldn't turn to Ephesians to find out what God said about marriage or they couldn't turn to First Corinthians 6 to find out what God said about church discipline, or um, they couldn't read the book of Revelation to understand maybe more about the end time events because those books just had not yet been written. And so how did God speak to his church? Well, much like before even the Bible was penned through Moses. The first five books of the Bible are penned through Moses. And prior to that, uh, there were no written scriptures. Well, no one can have faith apart from the word of God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. So how could a man come to faith and have genuine faith in the Lord without a written revelation? Well, his revelation came in many portions and in many ways. And so God, for instance, had revealed um, maybe through Adam and Eve. And as they told the story about while God clothed them with animal skins and took away their man-made fig leaves and exchanged man-made religion for a religion that was based on justice, where uh, the penalty for sin is death, and God showed the need to atone blood as a picture of what would happen. And so maybe Abel learned that way, or maybe by direct revelation, because we do know he was a prophet of God. Uh, We don't know that from the Old Testament, but Jesus reveals it to us in the New Testament. And so Abel knew 
that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so he came much like our baptism looks back at what Messiah did. The old Testament, uh, sacri- uh, the old Testament sacrifices prefigured what Messiah was going to do. So he came on the basis of blood where Cain came on the basis of human effort. And so God received one and rejected the other because you cannot invent your way of coming to God. You have to come to God in God's way. So God, by many portions and in many ways and dreams and visions and direct revelations and or previous revelations, re spoken, people heard the word of God. But eventually in time and space, it was put in writing. Well, there's a time frame from the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, where approximately there is no revelation given in Israel. That's 400 years. And then Jesus comes, fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament, and he commissions the church in the upper room, the apostles, that God's spirit is going to bring to their mind everything that they need to know and write about. And so he gives an affirmation of their coming work, their coming writing, that it would have God's fingerprints and inspiration all over it. And, but that took some time to finish the Bible. And so the last book of the Bible is written about 95 AD. Jesus ascends to heaven 32 AD. So the final book, Revelation, is completed in 95 AD. Uh, so there's these books that are being written over the course of time. And so God sometimes spoke directly. Someone would speak in a miraculous language that they never heard. That's what showed the people that it was a miracle. Uh, you know, like I, I don't really know much German except a few words, you know, Specken Sie Deutsch and, uh, you know, whatever it is. And, uh, Dankeschön and uh, just a handful of words, but I recognize German when I hear it. So think about it. Uh, your brother is uh, who you've grown up with your whole life, your cousin, your uncle. They're in the assembly in Corinth and all of a sudden they're speaking a language that you immediately recognize. But you know for a fact that that brother didn't know that language. And someone else stands up who also didn't know the language and he can perfectly interpret it. That was the miraculous nature of the gift of tongues. It was always a real language. And so there was actually only one passage in all the Bible that specifically delineates the languages spoken and they were all real languages. And it's Acts 1, it's on the day of Pentecost. And not only did they speak languages, they spoke dialects within a language. So if I didn't know German, all of a sudden I could speak German, but not just any German, but the kind they speak in Berlin, where I could speak Chinese, but not just any kind of Chinese, Mandarin Chinese. And that was the miracle. And then someone had to interpret. Otherwise it was meaningless. So the, the, the gibberish that people speak today has nothing to do with what we see in the New Testament era. Uh, it, there's nothing miraculous about that. In fact, those kinds of languages in that kind of gibberish, you can find in historical records two centuries before Christ. And it's no different from what certain groups are giving today. Look, we, we have to admit that there are clearly groups that are not Christians that are speaking in so-called tongues. The Way International, for instance, that denies the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Jesus. They're clearly not Christians, yet they have you go through a course to speak in tongues. 
So they're doing something, but it's obviously uh, not a supernatural gift given by God. And really, if you think about it logically, if indeed the Spirit of God was still giving the gift of tongues, then if Rick had, say, the gift of tongues and, and I had the gift of interpretation and we're in a service and Rick gets up and stands, in, sp- stands up and speaks in a tongue and the Bible says only one or two in any given service and I then interpreted, we ought to be able to play that same tongue that he spoke to someone else with the gift of interpretation and they ought to be able to give the same interpretation. It's never happened. Because what's happening today is not what's manifested in the Bible. I, I remember I was in a church in, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and some guy stood up in the service and spoke in a tongue. And then somebody else stood up and translated. I thought it interesting because the guy who spoke in a tongue spoke for about 30 seconds. And the guy who interpreted went for about three minutes. It makes me kind of nervous when I go to a foreign country and my interpreter goes a whole lot longer than I do because I think, what is he adding? And what is he changing? Anyway, um, what we are seeing today is not of the same nature. And so people, they, they can't argue if they do just a little bit of serious study. Oh, this was a real language. Well, this is not a, this is not a tongue language. This is a prayer language. Well, where do you get that in the scripture? You know, I guess the same place people get being slain in the spirit where Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. And whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. I am. And they all fall backwards. Oh, you see, there it is, being slain in the spirit. You know, you can really abuse the scripture and twist the scripture. And so they'll say, well, maybe this is not a human tongue, I admit, uh, but this is an angelic tongue. And then they turn to a text. And again, you take it out of context. You change its meanings where Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and they say, there it is. Uh, There's not only human tongues, but there's angelic tongues. So Clearly, this is not a human tongue, but this must be an angelic tongue. Paul is using hyperbole to make a point. In the next verse, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and know all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. Again, it's hyperbole. Do you know anyone that knows all mysteries and has all knowledge? The only one I know that would fit that bill is God. Only God knows everything. Paul is using hyperbole to make a point. And so he's using the point of, if I could even speak in an angelic language, but I didn't have love, it means nothing. So anyway, I hope that helps. Uh, Again, the email address, we're not taking live calls today, the the phone rings, uh, because our person usually takes them, is unable to be here today. But you can email us directly into the studio at the Bible line, tbl at wagp.us. Let's go to the next question. All right. Uh, Rob in uh, Trumbull, Connecticut. Okay. Right. Concerning Matthew 24, I must admit I'm confused when Jesus says of that day and hour, no one knows. Uh, When put in the context of Daniel's 70th week, uh, is it not clearly laid out in Revelation that once the peace agreement is signed in Israel, giving the Jewish people the authority to build their temple, that the clock starts its seven-year countdown to Jesus's return? If Revelation gives us a timeline, how can no one know? Is Jesus possibly speaking of the beginning of a time period of Daniel's 70th week, similar to the analogy you use, frequently the day of my youth? I bring this up because, as I am sure you've witnessed as well, there has been an overwhelming amount of speculation of events being linked to festivals and astrological signs, yet nothing concrete has occurred. Maybe this is a prophetic fulfillment in itself of the scoffers. 
I am a friend of Ken Scribner. Uh, not sure if you keep in touch with uh, his brother Dan, but he's doing amazing work with the Joshua Project. All right, yeah, Dan Scribner is a guy who was in our ministry at Duke University. He graduated number one from his class at Duke and went to uh, work with uh, the U.S. Center for World Missions, and the division of that was the Joshua Project, and he has spent the last 30 years cataloging every unreached group unreached people group in the world. He's done a tremendous service to the body of Christ so that all these mission agencies, especially those from the United States, you know, why should we send three missionaries over here to Timbuktu when we've got no missionaries over here in this place? And so it allowed mission agencies to strategically coordinate the sending of God's men and women around the world with the gospel and two to communicate sometimes in, you know, um, just knowing who's where, it can be very helpful. Anyway, that's another story. Uh, it is interesting in terms of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, and there have always been date centers and people who have you know, said, well, he's coming at this time and on this day. And, and part of that uh, that you're referring to in terms of the festivals, that's in reference to the nation of Israel. Uh, there were festivals in the Old Testament, seven to be specific, four that were... Uh, done in the spring and three in the fall. And so with the first coming of Messiah, four festivals that were practiced in the Old Testament were fulfilled in Christ's first coming, namely Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the Feast of First Fruits, and Pentecost. So it's not by accident that Jesus dies on Passover. He's buried his sinless body as pictured in the Unleavened Bread, uh, on Saturday, he's in the tomb, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on Sunday, the Feast of First Fruits, he is the first to rise from the dead. And a handful after he comes out of the tomb, all pictured in First Fruits. And then exactly 50 days later, at the end of the Feast of Weeks, on the 50th day, Penta, uh, the Spirit of God is sent. So there's still three fall feasts that are yet to be fulfilled, and, and they take place in the fall of the year. And so some have linked these to the second coming of Christ. Well, they're linked to the second coming time frame, but it's important that uh, that's another study in itself. But let me just say the 70th week is not like uh, it is true that the word Yom day can refer to a literal 24 hour day. And by the way, in every single instance in the Bible where it's linked with a number, it refers to a 24 hour day. Day one means day one, 24 hours, date in three days, you'll cross it meant three days and no one debates that. But somehow in the early chapters of Genesis, we want to read uh, modern science into what God said. And so people are denying a six day creation in our day. But even in Genesis, it speaks, um, of a time frame where a day can refer to longer than one 24 hour day. So we speak of the day of the Lord, which maybe is like the day of your youth. As you mentioned, you weren't a youth for one day, but there was a period of time, the day of your youth, that you're a youth. The day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church and it goes all the way through the millennial reign of Messiah. It mimics a biblical day and that a biblical day starts in the sunset and goes to sunset the next day. And so the day of the Lord starts with a time of darkness and the church is taken out and it gets very dark in the great tribulation. And then the sun comes up again and there's a bright millennial reign of Messiah for a thousand years. And the end of the thousand years, it gets dark again. And then we go into the eternal state. 
So that's not by accident. That's by God's design. And every word, every line, every tense, every letter Jesus taught was literally inspired. So when you speak of the 70th week of Daniel, it's clearly articulated in terms of, uh, you know, a seven year time frame, And that's underscored. Daniel uses the term times, time and half a time, which if you've been with us in our study of Daniel refers to three and a half years. And I articulated that letting scripture interpret scripture, not to mention in the book of revelation, it's divided into two halves, 42 months, uh, 1260 days, the exact same time frame. So your question is, well, if the antichrist makes a peace treaty, then it seems like you could count to the second coming to the exact day. Well, that's true if that's how it happened. So people get around that in a couple of ways. One, they say, well, we don't know exactly when the Antichrist will make the peace treaty. Maybe it will be a hidden event. That's kind of hard for me to believe. Now, it is true there's a space of time after the rapture of the church and the signing of the firm covenant that Daniel speaks of that appears to be a peace covenant, a peace treaty, some kind of an agreement uh, where the Jews have some favor in the world. And it's probably during this time that the temple, the, the third temple will actually be rebuilt. We do know that it has to be completed by the middle of the 70th week by the three and a half year point, because it's right in the middle of the seven year period that the antichrist goes in and commits the abomination of desolation. He defiles the temple, goes in, claims himself to be God. So the temple has to be completed by that time. Now we're going to Israel next May and there's still a few spaces. If someone wants to go, we have over 70 people going. You can go to search the scriptures.org if you're interested and you download a brochure and all the information is needed. But one of the places we're going to visit is the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute there in Jerusalem is an institute of Orthodox Jewish men who have reproduced all the temple garments, all the temple furniture. They, um, it's interesting that most Jews don't know what tribes they're from, except the Levites. Uh, that has been a preserved tribe. People know he's definitely a Levite and that's a sermon in itself. But Levites have been trained how to do the actual uh, sacrifices in the temple. Everything's awaiting except the temple itself. And so the temple is going to have to be rebuilt on the temple mount. We'll talk about this as we go through Revelation. When we come to the 11th chapter, God has John measure the temple, not just the temple, but those people who are worshiping at the temple. And so it's there. Um on the Temple Mount once again. And we'll talk about its position and different theories and everything else when we come to Revelation 11. We're just in Revelation 6 as we've been working our way uh, chapter by chapter uh, through this great book. So it's a clear 42 months, 1260 days period. So some would say, well, what Jesus is talking to when no man knows the day or the hour, that that's in reference to the rapture. Well, that's one explanation where we don't know the day or the hour of the rapture, but I don't think the rapture is at all in view in Matthew 24 and 25 any more than when someone came up to me on Sunday night, right before we went in to meet the pastor and they said, I read in this book, it seems to me to be wrong. And she read to me, Matthew 24, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. And this person said, that's not a reference to the rapture. I said, well, they're absolutely right. It's not. 
uh, it goes back to um, what he had just keyed off of the days of Noah in, in, in how God preserved Noah and his family and they were left to go into a brand new world, but the rest of the people were taken away in judgment. And this is not a reference to the rapture. Hal Lindsey came up with that interpretation. And because he wrote a book that was really fantastical uh, and more fiction than anything else, uh, the late great planet Earth, and it sold millions and millions of copies. And he said, well, this means this. And this is not really a, an actual um, scorpion. This is a F-18, F-16 fighter jet with the fire coming out the back. And, you know, uh, and so it was an interesting read, but it had very little to do with sound hermeneutics. Lay that aside. He came up with this interpretation. Now he went to the same seminary I went to Dallas Theological Seminary and his book was a good illustration of what not to do in interpreting the scriptures. Um, Again, lay all that aside. Uh, Some would say, well, this is in reference to the rapture. Jesus statement. No one knows the day or the hour. And that's true in reference to the rapture, but it's also true in reference to the second coming. But you are assuming You know, on the diagrams we show at the end of the 70 week, the second coming of Christ. And that's true. Does it happen on the last day of the 70th week? No. Um, There's uh, immediately after. So there's a time frame uh, of some days that take place. And it's interesting to think about how many days there might be in light of the end of Daniel, the 12th chapter. But uh, no one knows the exact day or the hour. But when you've seen all these things happen, Jesus said, look up because your redemption is right there. It's any moment. And I don't know if they'll wait five days or three days or 10 days or but there'll be some days. So no one can actually precisely absolutely say this is the day or the hour anyway. But if you stay with me, this question's coming from where? Um, it is from Trumbull, Connecticut. Yeah. So stay with me. Uh, if I know you're listening to search the scriptures and it might be that you don't realize that the Sunday morning sermons are what you're listening to there in Connecticut. Um, I think they're playing Genesis right now. And so I preached Genesis like five years ago. And so there happened to be running Genesis right now. You don't have to wait to listen to revelation Uh, If you're home and sick on a Sunday morning, you can live stream our services. We have a lot of people who live stream, especially the first service, and then they go to their church at the second service, and then people in other time zones and other countries and everything else who are live streaming. But the, the sermon itself is posted what time do you usually have it posted by, Rick? Oh, we usually get it in by four in the afternoon. By four in the afternoon. So if you will stay with us in Revelation, all these questions you're asking, we're going to cover. Uh, we're, we're covering it very carefully, and I hope by God's grace, if the rapture doesn't happen, but I'll take the rapture, and then you can let Jesus explain it to you. Um, but but if you'll stay with us, uh, we'll, we'll deal with each of these questions. Well, another perfectly good hour has gone, and... Glad you could join us and be with us for this Bible line in our next time together. Hopefully we'll take live calls again. Thank you. Have a great day.